Before I get to the science part of this podcast, I want to answer a question I got from a concerned parent, and I figured I'd pass it on. It's about fidget spinners. If your child with autism has a fidget spinner and they like it, good for them. If you have autism and you love your fidget spinner, enjoy it. But there's no evidence whatsoever that says that these things reduce stereotypes, behaviors, anxiety, or improve social communication in people with autism. Enjoy your fidget spinners. I know my girls do. I can kind of get the allure, but I don't think it's a valid treatment for autism. I read an article this week that changed the way I thought about autism genetics, and I want to share it with you. But first, I want to explain why it changed the way I think about genetics. Even though I consider myself to be a pretty informed person, my mind was still stuck in what is known as the Mendelian theory of genetics. This is what we were all taught in science, where there is a dominant copy of a gene and a recessive copy of a gene. And if you have the dominant copy, that's what's expressed. This does work for certain traits. For example, eye color. The theory is called Mendelian because it originated from an Austrian monk named Gregor Mendel, who figured it out by fertilizing flowers. He painted the pollen of a purple flower onto the pistil of a white flower, and all the new flowers were purple. He expected it to be a blend of white and purple, or even a lighter purple. He then took those flowers and cross-pollinated them, again by taking the pollen of some and painting it on the pistil of others. And in that crop, a few of them were actually white. This made him think of genetic influence as factors. What we know now is, yes, there are factors called alleles. On each chromosome, you have two alleles. You inherit one from your mother and one from your father. Because this was the 1800s, he developed pretty simplistic rules that were developed, but they do still hold today. You do get one copy from your mother and one from your father, and some alleles are dominant and others are recessive. But this isn't the only mechanism of genetics. When the sperm and egg come together, he theorized that these alleles are randomly assorted from all the possible maternal and paternal sides, and then the zygote can end up with any combination of paternal and maternal alleles. Let me just say that these theories do all hold true. For example, in eye color and diseases like Huntington's disease and cystic fibrosis. But in those two diseases, there is a mutated gene which can be passed down in a predictable way, for good or for bad. For the way genes in Huntington's disease and cystic fibrosis work, you can calculate the odds of having a child with one of these disorders if you carry either the dominant or the recessive allele. It can be figured out, and people can then make family planning decisions. But it doesn't all work that way. In autism, it's really not that simple. For example, there's something called X inactivation, where all the genes on the X chromosome are inactive. This involves something that Mendel didn't know about. Called epigenetics. Not to belabor this any longer, my point is that for many years I've been thinking about genetics as being Mendelian, totally and completely. And again, there's nothing wrong with this thinking. These were important discoveries, and these patterns of inheritance and expression of genes do apply. After 150 years, they still hold up. However, not every disease or disorder, or even biological trait, follows a Mendelian pattern. For example, autism. I know lots of parents out there, including me, think, "Okay, what genes did I pass down to lead to these features? Or what about the genes my husband passed down?" Decades ago, autism researchers were, in fact, looking for that dominant or recessive autism gene—a gene, the gene. Now we know it's not so simple as a gene. 
It's 50 different genes that can be seen in different combinations. For some forms of autism, the genetic influence does come from a few genes, like on chromosome 15, 16, and 22, and that's just a few of them. But for most cases of autism, it's polygenic, and what is known as common variation accounts for a lot of the genetic influence. Please hang on with me. There's a point here, and I'm going to get to it. So what we now know about autism is that de novo variants that don't appear in the parents but do appear in the child have a large effect on certain traits in autism. But common variants also have an effect, and it's not typically Mendelian. What is a common variant? A common variant is a mutation on different genes that are found in everyone. Not everyone has autism. Most of the time, these mutations or these variants don't really do anything at all. It's only through a specific combination of these variants on multiple genes across the genome that results in an autism diagnosis. And I also just want to point out that it isn't just about common variants. Environmental factors are very, very important. But eyes on the prize here. If you can understand common variation, I will be thrilled, and that will be one of us, and it's not me. People with autism have these variants in the quote-unquote right combination. They didn't really come from the mother or come from the father in the typically Mendelian way. And they're not dominant and they're not recessive. There are just too many of them. And autism is too complex. Again, I'm not even mentioning epigenetics as a mechanism that the human body has to turn on or turn off genes. I guess my point here is, and I do have one, is that we need to stop thinking of autism as something that shows up in this Mendelian pattern. If you're already there, though, I have some new scientific data to share with you that will blow your mind. So because these common variants are present in everybody, it does take tens of thousands of people to understand how they relate to autism. And while they don't account for all the causes of autism, each part is still important. And it's taken this long to get that many samples to study common variation, which is why we didn't know about it two decades ago. This week, a study in Nature Genetics showed that both common variation and those with de novo mutations that seemingly pop out of nowhere act independently to contribute to autism risk. They are independent and different, meaning they contribute to different things. I was afraid I would mangle this new paper in Nature Genetics, so I asked the senior author, Elise Robinson, to comment on what she wants people to know about the new paper. She says, First, common polygenic risk, the tiny little effects of common genetic variation spread throughout the genome, appear relevant and almost equally so to groups we examined. Regardless of whether the cases had intellectual disability or not, were male or female, or carried a large impact de novo mutation, common polygenic risk was a significant contributor. Second, we see evidence that genetic risk for autism comes in many different flavors. There are large impact de novo variants that create risk for autism, for example, that are strongly associated with intellectual disability, epilepsy, and motor delays. The common risk variants are comparatively neurologically gentle. They don't show these associations. In fact, common polygenic risk for autism is associated with higher IQ in general population samples. What? Okay, that all made sense until she said common polygenic risk for autism is associated with higher IQ in general population samples. Aren't de novo mutations associated with lower IQ? Didn't I just talk last week about those different genes associated with autism, like fragile X and chromosome 16, showing lower IQ? 
In this recent study with common variation, it means that the IQ of a brother or a sister of someone with autism or a parent didn't really have anything to do with the person with autism's IQ. It isn't Mendelian. It turns out that these common variants influence IQ in a different way than de novo variants. Children with de novo variants do end up with a higher risk of epilepsy and intellectual disability. The two types of genetic influence may work in opposite ways. And the interesting relationship between genetics, IQ, and autism isn't found just in kids with autism. It's seen in their parents. Take, for example, a high-profile study that was presented at last week's International Meeting for Autism Research in San Francisco. I went, and I can tell you the room was packed. I'm serious. I expected the fire marshal to pop in at any time and kick half of us out. I'll post a photo on the ASF podcast site. The presentation was given by Renee Gardner, who was able to link the father's IQ through Swedish Army medical records to autism risk in their children. She found a one-third higher risk of autism in children whose father's IQ scores were 111 or higher compared to those whose father's IQ was maybe around 100. What's interesting is that it also confirms early anecdotal reports that parents of people with autism had positions in technical trades with higher accomplishments and technical skills. Let me make a strong caveat here. They didn't take into account mother's IQ, which allegedly has a higher influence on child's IQ than father's IQ, because they didn't have it on the 300,000 plus mothers in this study. They did have it on the fathers. So just go ahead and try and get the IQs on 300,000 mothers and 300,000 fathers. Trust me, it's not cheap or easy. So this was kind of a way to get at the question of autism and paternal IQ as a start. On the other end of the IQ spectrum, they did find that fathers with lower IQ were at an increased risk of having a child with ADHD or intellectual disability. IQ itself is not Mendelian at all, so I'm not sure why I find these results so eye-opening. IQ is very highly environmental and genetic, but multiple genes and multiple environmental factors have an influence. It shouldn't really be a surprise that Mendelian laws of genetics don't explain autism, but I hope this podcast gives you a new insight on how complex the genetics of autism are, and that all of you on the podcast kind of have that aha moment like I did, where I realized that it's not all about Mendelian genetics. Thanks for listening.